0: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And since 1962, the week in which May 15th occurs was designated as Police Week, where we remember those who've fallen in the line of duty as officers, state, federal, local, in this great country. And today we're honoring the life and death of Detective Mike Doty, an officer from York County, South Carolina. The following clips are from a series of firsthand accounts from the York County Sheriff's Office. Detective Doty didn't know that a domestic violence call on January sixteenth, 2018, would be his last. Robbie brings us the story.
1: It all began with a domestic violence call on January sixteenth, 2018. Here's the first person to receive word of it, dispatcher Donna Blevins.
2: I took a 911 call from a lady that said that her husband was irate and had been pushing her around, not really a full-blown assault at this time. Um, she was telling me that he drinks a lot. Then she says, well, he's going and gotten his gun now. She starts screaming and hollering and obvious assault. He's assaulting her. I was like, oh, what is he going to do with that gun? You know, he's gone with it. You know, all these things are going through my mind and officer safety caller and victim safety is priority and now I'm worried about my guys, I'm worried about my officers because I've got them responding out there to a guy that's beat up his wife, supposed to be the person that he loves most in his world. What is he going to do to my officers? It's just that feeling, you know, it's just a feeling that oh, this ain't good, this ain't good. It just, keep, it just kept getting worse and worse.
1: One of the first responders Detective Joey Wallace.
3: Got there on scene there at the house, um, continued to ride perimeter up and down the road, listening, you know, for anything that we, you know, possibly gunshots or anything, because we really didn't know what was going on with the guy at that point. Just, it's just a weird, you know, not something that I thought that it would end up the way it did, but just that, it's just one of those things. It's like, this is just weird, you know.
1: Lieutenant Heath Clevenger made the call.
4: I sent a page out for two additional team members to come assist, and uh, Mike Doty was
5: the first one to answer.
1: Corporal Stephen Ramsey, Mike's writing partner that night, recalls his first impressions of the evening.
5: When I arrived on the scene initially, I saw that Doty was there too. And I was kind of surprised because Doty doesn't live in the area, but I remember saying to myself, why am I surprised? Doty's always working. <laughs> You know, why am I surprised that Dodie's here? Dodie's always working, always doing something.
4: I put Mike and Ramsey together in a car as a quick reaction in case something happened.
5: And so Doty volunteered to drive. I jumped in the passenger seat with Dodie. And I remember I said something to him and you don't think about these things that you say, but then after the fact, you come back to it. I jumped in, you know, it's nice and warm in his car. And it's freezing outside, and I, look, I looked at Dodie, and I said, hey, man, we lucked out tonight. We're going to get the, the warm seat, you know, not realizing what the events were going to transpire later on.
1: After two hours of searching the neighborhood, Sergeant Randy Clinton and Deputy Cole Green remember something just not being right.
6: And uh, I go to the vehicle, and, and I get the dog out, and I, I, get to, I start talking to Gabby. I talk to Gabby like she, she's a person. Me and her been through a lot together. I said, girl, I said... If you don't want to pick up a track tonight, I said, this be tonight, don't pick a track up And when a man with 34 years experience has
0: an eerie feeling, you learn to trust it
1: Corporal Chris Lorencio recalls being with Clinton and Green
0: I could see that the dog the dog was on a track and it was the, the kind of track it was on, um, it wasn't an old track. You could tell by the mannerisms of the dog, the way she was responding, the way Sarge said, you know we're on them, we're on them. I heard something rattling in the woods. Well, as
6: I heard it rattling in the woods, Gabby shot underneath the fence. Well, we jumped the fence. So and she picked up the track, and she's going up a little, like a horse trail or a little, little trail somebody made in there. She goes about 20 or 30 yards, and she cuts off to her left, and she goes into a little old gully-like, and she noses it. And I said, okay, guys, at one time he was laying right here watching us. At the house.
7: Looking back on it, that's another eerie thing, him just sitting in the woods watching us. We've been sitting out there
6: for two and a half, three hours, and he's just watching us. She makes a circle and comes back out on the trail. Lieutenant Ligon says, hey, I'm in your left back pocket. I said, that's the place to be.
3: And I probably hadn't got that out of my mouth, and we come around the corner, and it's just,
0: he just opened fire on us. He says, pop, pop hit the ground and I heard pop. I could hear the shots being fired and I could feel them. I could feel the, the, the percussion.
2: Three or four officers that were right there with Randy when all that happened and you don't know, you don't know who it was at that time, but you know, they say shots fired and you have an officer down and it really don't matter which one it is. It's just, it runs a, a feeling over you like, you can't explain. I mean, it's just like, you know, you know their wife's name, you know their kid's name, you know where their kids go to school.
1: The suspect escaped and evaded detection, even firing shots at a pursuing helicopter, until the early hours of the next morning, January 17th.
4: We got some information from the helicopter that there was a, a boat behind the house that there was a heat signature coming from.
7: So we... Uh, Came up with a plan to go after the boat.
0: And when we come back, we'll continue with this story. And we like to do it this way sometimes, folks, to let you know that any call, any call, and we've learned it from just a pullover on the side of the road, and out comes the shot in the night, and a domestic dispute case. And my goodness, the dispatcher, and that's Donna Blevin, she put it just right. He beat up his wife, the person he's supposed to love the most. What the heck's going to happen to my guys? And it's so true. And the cops have to go and respond to these calls every time. They don't get to pick and choose. When we come back, remembering Detective Mike Doty, Police Week, here on Our American Stories. we return to the story of Detective Mike Doty's final night of duty of his life. And when we last left off, the tactical officers were approaching a mysterious boat with an unknown heat signature beneath it. Here are the men who were on the front lines.
4: It was a possibility it was going to be dangerous, but, you know, you couldn't let that guy run
8: loose. Nobody thought twice about it, just this is the job we got to protect people we got to go get this guy.
9: Mike Doty was already taken off around the corner of the house. There was a deck kind of over here to the left, and it's like flat level with the ground. Well, I noticed that it was, the ground was dropping off, and it was big enough where somebody could get under there. And as we were coming, I, I remember I took my hand off my rifle and told Mike, let's check under that deck. And I and I did
8: that. And when I pointed, he started shooting us. And I heard the first shot go out, and it wasn't a pause, but it was just that trying to, where's it coming from? We had no idea that that he was underneath
4: the porch prior to that. He was up next to a hot tub. The FLIR can't see through stuff. It just picks up surfaces, so it, it can't see through windows. It can't see through wood. It can't see through walls, nothing like that. No technology that I'm aware of. Could have
5: told us that before we went around that corner. And then there was that first burst of gunfire and then a brief pause. And then there was a second burst of gunfire. And then I knew that something wasn't right. Because when you hear a first burst, you think, okay, you know, good guys are firing rounds. Everybody's okay, And then when you hear the pause and then the second set of gunfire, you realize that it's a a gunfight. I knew
9: immediately what had happened. Uh, There was no doubt what had happened. Um, I didn't see Mike in that initial, in the initial blast where he shot us. Uh, when I was returning fire in all that stuff was going on, I kind of saw what I initially thought was a pile of clothes kind of over here, and it was, it was where Mike had gone And And it's,
3: it's all happening so quick. It seemed like it was in slow motion, but it was all happening real quick, so... As soon as I turn the light on on my weapon, I get muzzle flash. Well, I engaged the muzzle flash, and it was coming from the deck area. Um, I engaged the muzzle flash, everything goes silent. You know, it's not a natural thing to put yourself in a
4: line of fire. Um, you know, and you see it on TV if you watch football, when they, when they say that a quarterback standing in the pocket and He's getting ready to get sacked, but, yeah, he still throws the football and makes a completion. You know, that's cute. Um, you know, when you're standing in the pocket knowing you're about to get shot
8: and still can fight back, you know. We didn't know where he was. I pushed up. I hit my light, and I saw um, I saw Dodie laying there.
3: I start moving. I cut my light on when I scan the deck. I see the bad guy under the deck, I holler it out. At that point in time, uh, Lieutenant Clevenger and Grady Gonzalez go and they cover down him. I looked to my left and we've got somebody down.
4: I couldn't tell it was him, I could just tell it was one, one of ours from the uniform. And immediately I started using my weapon light, looking and over to the right, I picked up the suspect up underneath the house.
8: He yelled, push man down, I got to him, and I'm scanning, I can't find, I can't, I'm just looking, but I'm constantly trying to evaluate Mike, Mike's not responding, I'm rolling, uh, life's gone, you know, you just see it in his eyes, you just, you just know that he's, he's there, but he's not, um,
10: <laughs>
11: hey, on, <Leon>, go ahead, <laughs> We can't hear you. We need two medics out here at this house right now, ASAP. We
9: got
6: two down, two down. We got the suspect at gunpoint.
8: Yeah, just the guy frozen time, man. He just, he didn't, he didn't want to die there. I guess for whatever reason, he didn't want to die then.
1: Emergency Medical Director Chuck Haynes, Sheriff Kevin Tolson, and Officer Trent Ferris.
3: We pull Mike out of he was almost in line with where uh bad guy was, and we pull him back. I start checking Mike, you know there's no holes in him or anything he's unresponsive i I give him c p r he starts breathing, i look, I notice blood on my hands from where I'd done the head tilt on him and um realized that he'd been shot in the head. Um, I heard the call on the radio that I never wanted to hear. Officers down. We need medics. So immediately I jumped out of the barricade from my safe area and started running towards where the gunfire was on the other side of the house.
5: first patient I encountered was Mike Doty. Uh, He was brought out and um, put on the stretcher and um, it was, um, and it was Mike. And it was Mike on the
9: stretcher and then the sheriff just, he yells at him and he yells and says, Mike! Mike!
8: I just shook his chest a little bit uh, yelled Mike, Mike, Mike. Uh, just, you know, I don't know why I did that. Maybe I thought I could wake him up, or uh, I wanted to see how, you know, bad maybe he was. I don't know why.
1: And now for Chris Doty, Mike's brother, and the moment he found out.
7: It took somebody, um, multiple people, um, calling my wife uh, until she finally woke up, and she came in. and I'll never forget that, that look on her face um, when she just looked at me and said, "Mike's been hurt. Your mind goes from one end to the other, and you don't, and you don't know. So um, But anyways, by the, by the time I got up and got dressed, then of course, my six-year-old was up, and she could she's smart enough to see that there was emotion. And it, and it wasn't good. By the time we got there, um, you, know, you just walk in, and, and it's just—I was focused on one thing, and that was, regardless of his condition, it was—I wanted to see him. You knew from the very beginning, as soon as you saw him that first time, nothing, nothing was going to change. We went in um, an operating room downstairs. Um, and just held his hand uh, and then he passed. Uh, and then you come out and it's you were devastated that that, it, it, that he had finally passed. But at the same time there was a little bit of relief that you knew that he wasn't suffering anymore. Didn't matter who you are or who you were. If he was, if he was your friend or a family member, it was just his, his pure love, his passion and his love for his friends and family. That,
0: that is what will be missed to me more than anything else. And my goodness, if you're not shedding some tears right now, there's something wrong with you. And hearing a grown man holding back tears, talking about a pal who, as he put it, well, it's not a natural thing to put yourself in the line of fire. It's not. And, by the way, this was a domestic dispute that turned into a straight-out, old-fashioned Western gunfight. But it was real. It was real. His pure love and passion for his family and friends, those were the last words we heard. And that's how I'm sure this detective, Detective Mike Doty, would want to be remembered. Responding to the call of duty, trying to protect a woman from a a man who'd been beating her up. And who else is going to come in? Who else is going to come in but the men in blue? Celebrating Detective Mike Doty's life, it's police week all week long, here on Our American Stories. our American stories and this is National Police Week. Back in 1962 President John F. Kennedy declared May 15th as Peace Officers Memorial Day and ever since we have honored fallen police officers during the week that day falls in. Today we take you back to 2016 in two unrelated incidents on July 5th and 6th. Two black men were shot by police in Louisiana and Minnesota. The following night on July 7th Protesters gathered in cities across the United States. In Dallas, about 800 marched, and they did so in an area protected by around 100 cops. As you might imagine, this was an emotional but peaceful event until one evildoer set his plan into motion. Described by his friends and co-workers as someone with anger management problems who was distrustful of police, this deranged man said he wanted to kill white people, especially white officers. Two minutes before 9 p.m. that night in Dallas, this toxic brew turned into action as he began shooting at police and civilian protesters. Since the cops were unsure where the gunfire came from or even how many attackers there were, they did what they knew they had to do. They moved into the open to secure streets and intersections and protect vulnerable protesters as other cops zeroed in on the gunfire. This eventually led to a standoff with the attacker holed up in a college building. He told police that he would only speak to black police officers. According to Dallas Police Chief David Brown, quote, We had negotiated with him for about two hours, and he just basically lied to us, playing games, laughing at us, singing, asking how many did he get and that he wanted to kill some more. Faced with a fortified, heavily armed opponent and seeing no possibility of a negotiated end, Chief Brown ordered a bomb disposal robot to deliver a pound of explosives to the attacker. That did the job, but the job wasn't over. The attacker had said he placed bombs all over Dallas, putting more citizens at risk. As it turns out, he was lying, but he had done enough damage. Eleven were injured and five dead. In the following days, police and well-wishers from all over the world converged to honor the five Dallas cops who were killed that night. Among the folks in attendance at the memorial service were President and Mrs. Obama and former President and Mrs. Bush. Here's how former President George W. Bush began his remarks.
11: Today, the nation grieves, but those of us who love Dallas and call it home have had five deaths in the family. Laura and I see members of law enforcement every day, we count count them as our friends. And we know, like for every other American, that their courage is our protection and shield. We're proud of the men we mourn and the community that has rallied to honor them and support the wounded. Our mayor and police chief and our police department have been mighty inspirations for the rest of the nation. These slain officers were the best among us. Lauren Aarons, beloved husband to Detective Katrina Aarons and father of two. Michael Kroll, caring son, brother, uncle, nephew, and friend. Michael Smith, U.S. Army veteran, devoted husband and father of two. Brent Thompson, Marine Corvette, recently married. Patrick Zamaripa, U.S. Navy Reserve combat veteran, proud father, and loyal Texas Rangers fan. (laughs) With their deaths, we have lost so much. We are grief-stricken, heartbroken, and forever grateful.
0: President Bush then got to the heart of the matter. Why had so many gathered in Dallas for this memorial?
11: Every officer has accepted a calling that sets them apart. Most of us imagine if the moment called for that we would risk our lives to protect a spouse or a child. Those wearing the uniform assume that risk for the safety of strangers. They and their families share the unspoken knowledge that each new day can bring new dangers. But none of us were prepared or could be prepared for an ambush by hatred and malice. The shock of this evil still has not faded. At times, it seems like the forces pulling us apart are stronger than the forces binding us together argument turns too easily into animosity disagreement escalates too quickly into dehumanization too often we judge other groups by their worst examples while judging ourselves by our best intentions and this is And this has strained our bonds of understanding and common purpose. But Americans, I think, have a great advantage to renew our unity. We only need to remember our values. We have never been held together by blood or background. We are bound by things of the spirit, by shared commitments to common ideals.
0: And President Bush then elaborated on those ideals.
11: At our best, we practice empathy, imagining ourselves in the lives and circumstances of others. This is the bridge across our nation's deepest divisions. And it's not merely a matter of tolerance, but of learning from the struggles and stories of our fellow citizens and finding our better selves in the process. At our best, we honor the image of God we see in one another. We recognize that we are brothers and sisters sharing the same brief moment on earth and owing each other, the loyalty of our shared humanity at our best. We know we have one country, one future, one destiny. We do not want the unity of grief, nor we want the unity of fear. We want the unity of hope, affection, and high purpose. We know that the kind of just humane country we want to build, that we have seen in our best dreams, is made possible when men and women in uniform stand guard. At their best, when they're trained and trusted and accountable, they free us from fear. The Apostle Paul said, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of strength and love and self-control. Those are the best responses to fear in the life of our country. And they're the code of the peace officer.
0: Finally, President Bush turned his attention to the families of the police officers killed in the line of duty.
11: Today, all of us feel a sense of loss, but not equally. I'd like to conclude with the word of the families, the spouses, and especially the children of the fallen. Your loved one time with you was too short. They did not get a chance to properly say goodbye. But they went where duty called. They defended us, even to the end. They finished well. We will not forget what they did for us. Your loss is unfair. We cannot explain it. We can stand beside you and share your grief. And we can pray that God will comfort you with a hope deeper than sorrow and stronger than death. May God bless you.
0: And after these short messages, we'll bring you more from vigils and memorials for the five Dallas police officers killed by a deranged attacker in July of 2016. Cops killed while watching over American citizens exercising their right to protest. Celebrating National Police Week here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we're celebrating National Police Week, and we love to honor the cops, and the fallen cops particularly. We honor soldiers on Memorial Day. We always do a special two-hour version. We honor our soldiers on Veterans Day and all through the year, and we do the same for cops, particularly our random acts of kindness, where we regularly tell stories of cops who just do extraordinary things in their neighborhood. And, yes, there are some bad cops. Take a listen to our hour with the head of uh, internal affairs at New York City Police Department. He was, head of, he was head of internal affairs for 15 years or so and wrote a terrific book called Blue on Blue. And there are bad cops, but good cops hate them. And know that, good cops hate bad cops. And most of them want to see them gone. And so we're going to take you right now to a memorial service for one of the five Dallas police officers killed in July of 2016. Dallas area rapid transit officer, Brent Thompson is first. Here are two of his daughters standing with their four other siblings, telling the audience about their dad.
12: Please bear with us. Um, This is really hard for all of us, but luckily our dad taught us how to fight under pressure and that's what we're doing today. And we wanted to say thank you to everyone here supporting him and everyone who's been supporting him and our family and all the other heroes that lost their lives Um, we all need that support and we really appreciate it it's been so overwhelming seeing all of y'all here today for our dad and honoring him and just giving us respect for what he's done for us because that's something he would have loved to seen Um, y'all knew our dad as a police officer but we knew him as our dad his only goal in life was to provide a better life for his children and us, whether it was going, becoming, an over, um, becoming a Marine or going overseas. He worked so, so hard to provide for us his entire life, working two jobs, sometimes countless, countless numbers of overtime, just so we didn't have to struggle and work hard, because that's what he wanted for us. And luckily, he's left this legacy that's something no one can take away. <laughs> And this is something we'll never be able to forget. And I know he's looking so happy that he's done what he's been trying to accomplish his entire life, providing all the support from all of the different officers, organizations, everyone. And I know it's just, we're so proud of him. And we just want him to know that we love him and that
10: he's done it. He succeeded. Every child thinks that their dad is a hero, but the six of us up here can hold our heads up high knowing that our dad is a hero. I think it's really important to remember he was just not a hero to Dallas, but to the world. He fought overseas for many, many years. Not fighting just for us, but for everyone as well. He was gone on special mission trips countless, countless times. He missed birthdays, dance competitions, tennis games, football games, but he never missed a Christmas. And I remember one year, we all thought he wasn't going to be able to make it home, and they told us, like, we'll just celebrate later, you know, Christmas in July. But he surprised us all, and he made it home. And now he's home for good. One thing I would always say to my dad when he walked out the door was, goodbye, Daddy. Be safe. And tonight we say our final, goodbye, Daddy. We love you. Be safe.
0: And listen to this stirring ceremonial final radio call for Officer Michael Kroll at Prestonwood Baptist Church in Plano, Texas.
5: 413.
0: Now let's give the last word to Dallas Police Chief David Brown, a man who had worked for decades to reform Dallas Police to increase transparency and accountability. The man who ended the standoff with a lunatic who attacked a peaceful protest and killed five cops. And the man who in many ways became a symbol for the best that his department and profession had to offer. No white, no black, no artificial division.
13: Faster than a speeding bullet more powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Look, it's a train. It's a plane. No, it's Superman. As a young child I ran off from school to hear that. So that I could see the reruns The television series Superman. I love superheroes because they're now like what I aspired to be when I grew up. They're like cops. They're like police officers. Superheroes. And, And cops are mission focused. Give us a job to do, we'll focus on accomplishing the mission. So what's our mission today? It's helping these families understand how to conquer this tragedy. What do we tell you all? Well, being a person of faith, I always refer back to the good book, the Bible. And we have an example of how to conquer this tragedy. When the good Lord was crucified and rose on the third day, alive he said oh death where is your sting oh grave where is your victory families we love you we love you with everything we have We are now your surrogate family members. We're your brothers and your sisters. When you need us, you call. Because we'll not only be loving you today, we'll be loving you always, always, till the end of time. We'll be loving you until you are me and I am you. Always, always, faster than a speeding bullet, more powerful than a locomotive, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Look, it's a train, it's a plane. No, it's Patricio Zamarepa. Look, it's Brent Thompson. Look, it's Michael Crow. Look, it's Lorne Aarons. Look, it's Michael Smith. Godspeed. God bless you. God bless the Dallas Police Department.
0: And there you have it, Police Chief David Brown, who, by the way, had urged anyone in Black Lives Matter that if they wanted to make a difference, they really wanted to make a difference, there were openings at the Dallas Police Department. And to many people's credit, well, applications rose. And that's a good thing. And a great unifier for a city, for the country, an African-American himself, Police Chief David Brown's final words and again this is national police week and we're celebrating the week the five fallen heroes in dallas celebrated and honored here on our american stories their stories beautiful stories This is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. Your stories are some of our favorites. And today, Robbie brings us the story of Fawn Weaver. Her father, Frank Wilson, was a legendary Motown producer who helped establish Motown Records' West Coast presence. However, around the time Fawn was born, the Wilsons' lives drastically changed. Here's Fawn to tell us her story.
14: It's time to make a change. My father was one of the original Motown hitmakers. There were always Motown folks in the house. Everywhere you would turn, there were gold and platinum records and, and a billboard that now just tracks the top you know, 100 or top 200 hits. They used to track producers in the nation and who had the most hits. And, and I remember looking at one of the placards one day and going, hey, my dad was the number two producer in the nation. But the, the irony is, is that even though we always had these people around, we were not a part of it. The year that I was born, 1976, my father decided not to sign another contract with Barry Gordy's and Motown. Not not for any reason that you might hear out there in regard to Barry's contracts and 360 deals and all the rest of that stuff. My father was one of a, a very few number of those in the very, very beginning that may, always maintained his master's. It truly was just he felt as though he had been called to ministry and away from the music business. So if you can imagine that the year that I was born, my mother and father had this um, massive home on the top of the hill in Hollywood Hills and all the celebrities would come to their home. He'd throw these huge parties and all the rest of that. And then he decides I am going to not sign another contract. I've been called by God, God will make a way for everything. Well, meanwhile, he doesn't have money coming in. So you have two people who decided, all right, God called us, we're going to leave all the money that we have been making, but we still have all these bills. <laughs> we still have this lifestyle. We still have these fancy cars. And so they. it was an interesting time because if you can imagine the amount of stress that they were then under, because you've got all these bills, you have all these people that are looking at you as being this wealthy family. Uh, but meanwhile, you don't really have gas for your car. And they had this uh, store at the bottom of the hill called, I think it was called the Country Mart. They had a grocery tab there where they would get all their groceries and, you know, put it in the book and then they would pay at the end of the month and keep going. And, and so they did that for several months after this transition. And, and finally, the store owner said to my dad one day, hey, Frank, I've noticed you've not paid your bill in a while. And so my parents had to figure out, all right, we, we, we feel like we've been called by God to minister to the people that are in the industry where we used to be, but we don't have the money to pay for basic necessities. And this was the life I was born into. (laughs) And so they sold their home in Hollywood Hills. They moved to Pasadena. And so we grew up in this beautiful home where people thought we had all this money, but then we didn't really have furniture and we didn't have sort of basic stuff. And uh, I remember learning for the first time that we actually technically on paper had money because we were we would go to school every day. We'd have like these terrible lunches with you know nothing good. And I wanted to get food like all the other kids and they had like these lunch cards where they got all of the best foods every day and so i went back to my mom and i said hey you know the kids they get these great lunches we have these terrible lunches if we don't have money can i just get those lunches and my mom said we can't because we make too much money for those and i was like what are you talking about we don't have any money so that that was my uh, that was my upbringing of absolute confusion really I I look back at that and it formed every aspect of how I live of how I do business of my marriage of every part of it because I require equality from every person no matter your background no matter your race no matter how much money you came from or have everybody is equal and that is how I treat everyone there is no delineation for me and I think the more I live the more I realize that that's a gift because a lot of people Count themselves out, meaning they will not go for the job or they won't start the business or they won't bet on themselves because they have these fears that I simply do not have. It was an odd situation to be in where people on the outside are looking at us and are like, Yeah, those Wilsons have a lot of money, but inside we're doing flips and cartwheels in this massive size living room because there's really nothing in it but a piano. <laughs> and and a you know and a plug-in TV. It's funny because I am I am utterly unimpressed with people in general, including myself. And I think that's because of the way that I grew up. Like I don't I I have been in the room with sitting presidents of the United States and I call them by their first name and uh, My husband he said babe, you're supposed to call them president so-and-so But I'm not wired that way because I grew up with Uncle Stevie and Uncle Smokey I did not I didn't grow up in such a way where I saw people at on levels Everybody to me was equal and my father had this amazing gift of treating the president the same exact way as he treated a janitor and so I have taken that with me. And so I don't show any more respect for a person that is at the top than I do that's at the bottom, which very much so confuses people at the top, I think. I tease my parents, my father when he was alive, but I still tease my mother that we were his Uh, their pastor's guinea pigs. And so, so pretty much because they, they came from being in the entertainment industry with wild parties and sex and, and drugs and rock and roll and all the rest of that stuff. And then you come into this Southern Baptist type of situation, like out of all of the denominations to choose, they chose Southern Baptist. I absolutely would not listen to anybody (laughs) the unless unless you could actually make the argument to me as to why what you are saying is correct or why what you are saying i should do i would not do it and so i had authoritative parents who said well you should do it because i said to do it yeah so that's not going to work for me i'm going to need you to tell me the thinking behind why you're telling me to do what you're doing so needless to say i bumped heads with my parents uh more than a little bit And it it really came to a head when I was 15 years old and I left home. And I left home and I moved in with some folks that were in the projects, uh, an area in Watts called Jordan Downs. So there are sort of two projects, main projects, One was home of the Grape Street Crips, which is where I was, and then across the way was Nickerson Gardens, home of the Bounty Hunter Bloods. And so I, at 15 years old, move into this environment not really knowing anything about it, only knowing that these kids at high school, they had parents that let them do whatever they wanted. And I wanted freedom, (laughs) and I wanted to make my own decision. So I move into the hood, And realized very quickly, number one, uh, the hood has a lot of cockroaches. (laughs) I had never seen those before. But the second thing was I realized very quickly how I did not fit in. And I did not fit in in for a couple of reasons. One of which, my my grandmother is from Germany. Uh, My grandfather was fighting in World War II and he was stationed in Germany. My grandmother is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed woman growing up under Hitler's regime, who does not see things the way that Hitler saw them, obviously, because she fell in love with my grandfather. Uh, She couldn't speak English, he couldn't speak German. And the entire time they were alive, neither one of them could explain how in the world they got together when neither one spoke the other's language. And so they got married, they had my mother, and my mother's very fair-skinned as, as a result of that relationship. So then I am not fair-skinned, but I've got you know, bright green eyes and light-colored hair. Uh, and, and so when I moved into Jordan Downs, I didn't realize I looked different. But I was at a concert at in the projects one day and literally the guy from stage, he's rapping and I'm enjoying. And he looks me dead in the eyes with all these people around. And he says, we have a half breed in the house. I didn't even know what a half breed was. And and I'm looking around and everyone's looking at me. And it was a very pivotal moment for me because I realized, okay, I don't I, I, I don't fit in. And I did not realize I didn't fit in. So I'm in an environment where I'm surrounded by African-Americans, but realized they didn't see me uh, as fully African-American. And that was an interesting lesson. So I go from there and I go and I, I stay with another person who I had met through school, similar situation. And uh, and then she had a abusive boyfriend who came over with a knife one day, so that didn't work out. And so I moved at the age of 17, almost about to be 18, into a home called Children of the Night. But I didn't fit in there either because Children of the Night is specifically a homeless shelter for people who were prostitutes and people have been trafficked and things of that nature. And so I'm in this environment because it's the only place that had a bed for me and rather than go back home where i would you know go toe to toe with my parents i really wanted to set out on a life of my own so i made that decision but children of the night when you turn 18 you must move and so as soon as i turned 18 i moved to a place called covenant house which is an amazing organization for kids who are 18 And older who find themselves homeless for whatever reason there's no judgment so we're all in this this location Covenant House and they had a program where it's set up where you go out every day and you look for a job and you come back and if you get a job they hold your money for you basically in a savings account to allow you to save for your own place which I absolutely loved there were two things that I discovered while being at Covenant House Uh, Number one, the the current theme of I didn't fit in and I, I did not seem to be the same as the people around me. And I learned that on my first day of being there, we all had to go out and look for jobs. And so we all went out, we looked for jobs, we came back and we sat around this sort of campfire. And this, I mean, this isn't a small organization. This is over 100 kids that are, or, you know, 18 to I'd say early 20s we're all sitting around, at least a hundred of us, and everyone is talking about their challenges of getting a job that day and how they weren't able to get a job that day. And I literally sat silent. And the reason I sat silent is I went out to get a job and I came back with four. And the second thing that I discovered is in my relationship with money, I didn't care about it other than to have the ability to to be able to be free and to have my own place and things of that nature so i saved up money very quickly and was able to move out because every day i went to multiple jobs and i saved my money and i went out i was able to get my own place and to begin uh, living my own life but that was my road through my teenage years (laughs) through my teenage years and then i started my own company after saving money and working multiple jobs, rather than going and working for someone else, I realized, hmm, so far I've not been like everyone else. I've been a leader in every single situation I've been in since I was a kid. I think this is the way I'm wired. And so I started a PR, and special events firm. And not surprising because of the circles that I was in that when I did special events, there was usually some type of celebrity involved in it. And so in that regard, I definitely had a, a head start in that I also, the my office was actually my father's office in Pasadena, he wasn't using it and it was just sort of a vacant office. I said, hey, I'm gonna start a business. Can, you're not using this office. Can I, <laughs> can I take it over for my own company? And so that is, that is what I did and that's how I began. I was quite young. And like most young people, you don't know what you're doing. And so you're going to fail a few times before you actually get it right. In that instance, I hired, I think, I think I had 10 people working for me before I was like 20. <laughs> it was just absolutely absurd. And so I've, I've done, I've learned how to do things better to say the least. Leaving home so early and having to really fend for myself it gave me a, a, I think it underscored the confidence that I already had. And I don't think that that would have happened if I had gone the normal route of staying at home until I was 18 or 17 and going to college and four years in college and, and going that path. I don't think that the way that I look at life, my optimism in looking at everything and saying no matter how difficult Things are they can absolutely get better and they will get better and I know this because I've been there and so having that background I think allows me to be my husband refers to me or when he's describing to me to other people he'll he'll refer to me as unflappable and I think that that comes from that upbringing and everything that I saw once I left home I think that failure is, is an incredible teacher. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I think success is a better teacher. However, <laughs> I do believe that there are certain lessons that those who fail early on, on my phone, the very first picture that is on there, if you open up my album, says, fail harder. And I have this true belief that if you wake up every single day and you give every day your all and you are not afraid to fail, what you're able to achieve is remarkable. And I wake up and, and uh, folks will look at the way that I do things and, and think that I am fearless, which is a, which is not true, that's not accurate. I am not fearless. I simply do not allow fear to dictate what I do and do not do. Every morning when I wake up, I am very clear about why I am here. And to have that purpose-driven life is one of the greatest gifts I think any of us are given if we really lean into that. So for me, I would say the failure of my first company, the failure of my second company, the failure of my third company. And I never stopped trying until I found the space that worked for me. The irony of it all is every single thing that I did that I failed in is what I am using now. It is what has allowed for my company now and the way that I do things for us to grow so quickly. For for us to be the fastest growing independent American whiskey brand in US history does not just happen. That is literally everything that I learned from every failure is now Working all together to create success, and I think that that's the way that it works. The PR and special events business. Well, the beauty is is that every every business, every brand that I've ever invested in, that I've ever run strategy for, I use PR as the number one way to t- talk about the brand. I will not sell something I do not absolutely believe in. And so the ability to share the story behind a brand is something that I honed back then. And it is something that I rely on now. My second company was called City of David, and it was a Christian clothing company. And it was really me putting my heart on on my wear. It was one of those things where I had an idea and it was a great idea, but I did not put together a plan to roll it out. I put together a plan to basically do the product line, but I didn't put together the plan to roll it out. And it's very similar to my PR and special events firm is I knew how to do it. I knew what I was doing, but I didn't put together a plan to actually succeed and to know What could the overhead be that I could afford versus taking on 10 employees right out the gate? And so with each of these things, it's not that the idea would not have been a successful idea, it's that I did not take the time to put together all of the pieces that would have been required to succeed. My third was an investment in a fine dining restaurant everything was clicking on all cylinders on that particular one. But what I discovered on that one and uh, on another investment that I have made is you can't really invest in a product or a type or you have to invest in the person. And if the person, if that founder that you're investing in is not 100% ready, then the business will fail.
1: And after years of backing other people, it was time for a change, whether Fawn wanted it or not. On a vacation that was meant to be a step away from work, Fawn came across the story of Nathan Nearest Green, the former slave who was the first black master distiller in the U.S., and the first master distiller of his close friend, a man named Jack Daniels. And since discovering Uncle Nearest's story, she's begun a book, secured movie rights, started the fastest growing and most awarded new American whiskey brand in United States history and much more
14: but I have I have always intentionally had my name in the background uh, not in the background like n- non-existent and the one thing that the uncle nearest team we they laugh at be- but it's a it's a constant conversation is me trying to get to the background again uh, this is a brand that, When I I founded it, the second person I hired was a spokesperson. I was never, ever, ever wanting to be in the forefront. When we sent out the press releases, no one would speak to the spokesperson. Everyone wanted to talk to the founder. So it thrusts me into a space that I never really wanted to be in, and I actually still don't want to be in it. One of the things that I discovered early on in this process because initially I had put so much weight to the book and the movie and thinking that's the way it it needed to be told, that was what was important. And then I went with Nearest's family to go see Hidden Figures. It was Absolutely phenomenal. We sat there. We cried. We laughed. We cheered. We jeered. We did all of that. And then when we left out, we were in the lobby of the of the theater. And I remember telling Neris's descendants, I said, "This is how the movie has to be." And so we leave, and we're so excited. And and I actually secured the agents, the same agency who repped both the book for Hidden Figures and put together the deal for the film. However. A couple months after, I remembered trying to remember the name of the people that Octavia Spencer, Taraji P. Henson, and Janelle Monae played. Those were the three stars. And I absolutely could not remember the name of the people who they were playing. So you have an entire film that swept the world and everybody was learning About these three women and it was just an incredible film and yet I couldn't name any of the people who the stars played the challenge with entertainment at this time in this day and age is it's replaced very easily so what is the story of today A couple years from now, nobody's going to remember who that person was. It's going to be replaced with other entertainment. And what we realized is the reason why Jack Daniel, Jim Beam, Johnny Walker, the reason why we're still talking about all of those guys is we're still drinking from bottles with their names on it. That's where we shifted and we began to pivot from the book and the movie having as great of a significance, we're still going to do it. But it is, obviously, this is kind of taken a little bit of attention. <laughs> but, but what we realized very early on is, is the legacy of Nearest Green would not live in a book or a movie. It will be there, but that's not where it will live. When we're looking at people still knowing and talking about him and his legacy 200 years from now, the only way it could happen is if his bottle is sitting right next to Jim, Johnny, and Jack.
0: And you've been listening to Fawn Weaver's story. What a remarkable voice. What a distinctive journey. Not fitting in, cutting out on her own, starting not one, not two, not three, but more businesses, failing, learning from that failure, applying that knowledge. Because my goodness, when we fail, we grow and we learn. And applying it all to a big move in her life from the Hollywood Hills of Los Angeles to a place called Lynchburg, Tennessee, where she started a whiskey company. And my goodness, Uncle Nearest Premium Whiskey. There's the 1856 Premium Aged, the 1884 Small Batch. Both are still available because the 1820 Nearest Green Single Barrel Edition, well, that one sold out. Vaughn Weaver's story, a remarkable story, an American dream lived beautifully here continue here on our american stories and now it's time for another installment of the mcclellan files where we go deep inside the life of bob mcclellan someone you don't know but whose life and whose voice well you're sure to be captivated by and today bob who's a marine shares a story about his dad who also happens to be a marine
15: After getting my dad settled in the living room for a short visit after my parents' divorce, my father and I sat on the couch to have a beer and watch some TV. Sitting next to him, I noticed how much he'd aged. His six-foot, two-inch frame, combined with his broad shoulders and chest, gave no hint that he'd lost any of his power. But he was heavier and softer, his hair was graying, and the creases in his face were deeper. As he leaned forward on the couch to reach his beer and cigarettes, I had to admire how formidable he still looked. He was aware of what was happening to him, but he didn't care. He had no interest in prolonging a life that he felt had exhausted its excitement and purpose. He'd become bored. There were no more wars to fight, no more women to love or children to raise. Left without these, his passion for life was diminished and his interest in life had become lackluster, so he saw no sense in prolonging it. Life had become a still photo rather than a motion picture. His coming to visit instilled some real anxiety in me. I knew what to expect from him. As the chain of command drove the hierarchy in his house growing up, it would be like that here. He'd want it that way. In his house or under his command, he was like a giant redwood tree and very little grows underneath those trees. They are so big, they gather all the sunlight for themselves. He was used to giving orders and having them followed. But now I was 26 years old. I was a former Marine and a senior in college, and I'd been living on my own and taking care of myself for the last eight years. Coming to visit my home it would be my dad's turn. It would be his turn to move over. My father would tell us boys that the changing of command from father to son would be inevitable. Let me tell you something, kid, that a day will come when you're not going to want to do what I tell you to do, and on that day, you're going to leave, because if I lose control to one of you, I won't be able to control the other two. That day came when I was 18. I blocked the doorway that he was trying to pass through on his way to the kitchen. I stood in the doorway and My chest really expanded. I thrust it in front of him. We stood face to face looking into each other's eyes. He said, so you think you're ready to take on your old man now? Is that what this little display of yours is all about? Well, let me tell you something. At my age, I don't care anymore about winning or losing. What you need to know is I'm not going to go easy. I'm going to get a piece of you even if I have to bite it off. You're not going to get out of this pain free. You need to think about whether it's worth it to you. Staring into his unblinking metallic blue-gray eyes, I thought over what he said and decided, Yeah, it's time to step aside and let my father go on his way. My father knew that the key weapon in intimidation is that just a pinprick of doubt Will burst the overinflated balloon of self confidence. Living in San Francisco in 1974 was very different than the life on the farm my father led as a young man. Life in the city was about freedom and audacity, not regulation and authority. There was nothing that was clean or sterile. Order was not part of the day's routine. And traditional roles? <laughs> well, traditional roles and values. We're best left back in your hometown. My roommate returned from work after 2 a.m. the night my father arrived and joined us at the kitchen table for a drink. Sitting around the kitchen table, my father reached into his pocket and produced an empty key ring. Tossing it on the table, he said, Look at that. That's something you don't see every day, an empty key ring. No more house, no more office, no more car. I left with only my suitcase. Ellie, yeah, of course. I'd already given away all my clothes. There was very little to pack. At least she didn't throw them out in the street or the driveway like she used to do. Well, She can have it all, including the car payments, house payments, electrical bill, and all that crap that goes with those things. I have my suitcase, and that's all I want. I went overseas with far less. The night after my dad's arrival, I invited my girlfriend and a couple friends over to meet him. Sitting around the kitchen table having a few drinks was an easy way to introduce my father. Sharing drinks at a bar, around a table, talking, that was his element. After everyone imbibed a few pops, he answered questions about his life, and he started to tell a story about his time in the military police. I looked over at my girlfriend sitting next to me and I started to run my fingers through her hair. I commented to her about how beautiful she looked. She didn't respond or pay any attention to me as she seemed fascinated by the story. A phone call from a hotel to the Kingston police asking for help. The desk clerk at a local hotel reported that a woman was with a Marine upstairs in her room, screaming, You murderer, oh my god, you murderer! The door was locked and bolted on the inside, and the hotel clerk was afraid of what he might find inside. He wanted the MPs and the police to come immediately. He continued, In the hall, we could hear sobbing inside the room, but there were no other noises. We pounded on the door until she screamed, you murderer, you animal, help, help. I wh- wh- whipped our weapons right out, unlocked the safety, pulled the hammer back and I heard my body back and shouldered it into the door to get it open. And the three of us exploded into the room with our guns searching for a target. With our weapons locked and loaded, we quickly surveyed the room but found no one other than the sobbing woman sitting alone on the edge of the bed. She raised her arms. She's in there, she said. As she pointed to the bathroom, he's in there. I ordered the other two MPs to cover the door as I burst into the bathroom. Looking down the barrel of my forty-five, I only saw a drunken Marine sitting on the floor in my gun sights. Sitting between the toilet and the wall with his arm around the back of the water pipe, he looked up at me and with a smile on his face, he waved his arm and said, Hiya, Sarge. We all had our guns pointed at him until we realized he was unarmed and certainly too drunk to stand up. I demanded to know, what the hell's going on here, Marine? With his free arm, the Marine pointed inside the toilet bowl and said, look. We all leaned forward to peer into the bowl, and to our amazement, there was a small orange duckling. The couple had won at a local fair, swimming around the inside of the bowl. The drunk Marine said, Watch this, Sarge? With the arm around the water pipe, he reached up and pulled the cord on the water closet. The sound of the flush unleashed a torrent of screams from the woman in the room as the water was sucked down the drain. The duck, caught in the whirlpool, started swimming faster and faster against the suction of the vortex in an effort to stay afloat. The faster the water drained, the faster that duck paddled. In spite of his struggle to paddle fast enough, though, to keep him from being flushed down the drain, he was eventually sucked down the drain and disappeared. The bathroom became quiet as the bowl started to refill. Mystified, all eyes remained transfixed on the now empty and quiet bowl which had just swallowed the duckling. What the hell are you doing here? He said he demanded. Marine just sat there next to the toilet laughing so hard he could care less about the prospect that he was going to be arrested and hauled off to the brig. The woman in the other room, she just continued sobbing about her boyfriend's cruelty until the water refilled the bowl. When the water level was restored and the toilet bowl quieted down, out of the depth of the drain, the duck suddenly popped up and continued to paddle around in his porcelain pond as if nothing had happened. As the crowd sat around the table laughing, a friend approached and asked, Hey, is it cool to smoke some pot? I mean, I know your dad was a Marine and military policeman and all that, but is he cool? The reality of cultural and generational clash became real clear to me now. If I could have imagined at that moment that his few days' visit would turn into his becoming my roommate for the next 18 months, I would have thrown all his clothes out on the driveway and bought him a one-way bus ticket back to my mom.
0: And you've been listening to Bob McClown, and what a storyteller. And you can just see all this in your head, and I'm sure we all see different things. But my goodness, that little duckling going down, and then the stillness and the silence... And then it an emerging, and this culture clash, the 1970s, San Francisco. Yeah, it's probably everything you think when I say that. And here comes this old school Marine to crash with his son. And we look forward to more from Bob McClellan. It's the McClellan Files. And by the way, there are storytellers like this in every community. I bumped into Bob. I was supposed to meet him and talk about this or that. I'd heard he was a good writer. I stayed with him for five hours, and I said, Bob, you need to be a regular contributor on Our American Stories. And so if you know somebody like Bob, if you are Bob, have stories that are compelling and beautiful and frightening, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. We're interested in hearing them because you are the hour in Our American Stories. We love hearing the stories from ordinary Americans. Again, the McClellan files Bob McClellan's story, his father's story, here on Our American Story.